that there was none better at insults than Winston Churchill, who had no love affair with a particular Lady Astor. Actually, the feeling was quite mutual, and on one occasion, she found the great statesman rather obviously uh, inebriated in a hotel elevator, and with cutting disgust, <clears throat> she sniffed, Sir Winston, you are drunk. To which he replied, my lady, you are ugly. <laughs> and then he said, tomorrow I will be sober. <laughs> Another occasion, Mr. Churchill and Lady Astor were engaged in a verbal sparring, and she told him, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. And he said, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> so, the tongue is often used in ways that are edifying and certainly ways that are painful, which we'll see in our study today. I'm sure everybody here can relate to the experience of being betrayed at some time in your life, whether it was a friend, a church friend, a family member, or even a spouse who you thought you could trust and depend on, and they turn around and do something to bring you great grief and heartache. The Psalmist David experienced this, as we'll see in our study today of Psalm 41. Even my close friend whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. David experienced this type of uh, suffering and sorrow, and then he was actually speaking prophetically of his greater descendant, Jesus the Messiah, who would experience the same thing in his humanity. What a great reminder it is of the truth from Hebrews chapter 4 and 2, where we read about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So it's a wonderful thing to know pain that we experience, he really does know firsthand. It's difficult to go through the type of pain that David speaks of here, and even more so when you're physically ill and in poor health. These types of tests in the life of a believer reveal a great deal about our spiritual condition. After all, it is adversity that really shows us who we truly are in our heart of hearts and who it is that we really trust. David finds himself undergoing all of this adversity, yet he knew he was blessed. <clears throat> we see the heart cry of David in his prayer for God's mercy when he is ill, and at the same time, he's surrounded by these friends who are hoping he dies so they can fulfill their agenda. And then that particular trusted friend who was in on the whole scheme to bring harm to David. And even in the midst of all this, David still reflected on God's blessings in his life. David considered his own sins, he confessed them and dealt with them. Despite all of his ups and downs through the years of his life, he was a man who showed mercy to those in need, to those who were weak. He was one who showed mercy, and he sought the Lord in the midst of his trying times. As one author put it, the merciful fall into the arms of mercy. When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he stated that those who are blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. David believed this as well, though he never heard that sermon, but those same truths are taught throughout the Old Testament scriptures as well. People who know God show mercy to others and they deal with their sin. So let's look at Psalm 41, the betrayed and yet blessed. David speaks of his integrity really in the third person here. 
How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desires of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. The person who is blessed is someone who knows peace and contentment that can only come from the Lord. And this is given to those here, as David speaks, who have shown mercy. They experience mercy from God. <coughs> David was a man who defended the weak, and God defended him. He took to heart the scriptures at Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 28, uh, which God declared to Israel to show mercy. David had mercy on the needs of the people in his kingdom, and that was true in his way of life. So he could pray with integrity as he asked God to show him mercy. There are spiritual blessings for people who show mercy to other people. David had confidence God would sustain him while in his sickness and even restore him back to his role as king in good health. So he has a request in verse 4. As for me... <clears throat> I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Like all of us when we're sick, he is asking the Lord to restore him to health and have mercy on him. It would appear from the text that this illness was the result of God's discipline in his life for sin. David says clearly he had sinned against the Lord. He knew by experience the chastening hand of the Lord, and the Lord also often uses illness. In Psalm 23.3, David wrote, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This is not to say all sickness is directly related to sin, for sure. But David understood that when he sinned, he had experienced physical illness as God's discipline. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 39. So he confessed his sin to the Lord as he saw this illness was the Lord getting his attention and disciplining him. If we reflect on just these first couple verses in this psalm, we see the importance of showing mercy to be, being alert to people who are in need, who are weak, and going ahead and meeting that need. And we also see how critical it is that we're up to date with confessing our sin, that we're just not going on our way and ignoring our offenses to God. Then we see the treachery of others, which really brings us to the messianic portion of this psalm. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. can only try to picture in our minds David lying ill, and these co-workers and men who had been his companions and confidants are like vultures coming in for the kill. They had become his enemies. They're talking to others about him. Oh, he's going to die. He can't be king anymore. They want to take advantage of his weakened state. And meanwhile, they come in and visit him, pretending to be his friend. How are you feeling today? We're very concerned about you. Only to go out and to tell lies and to try to cause the people to question him being able to even continue as king. 
people are whispering to others. They're slandering David. They're making plans of how to be rid of him. And David is lying there sick, and they're hoping, they're hoping this illness, as I said, will cause people to lose hope in him as their king. Imagine lying there ill and thinking about your supposed friends who are obviously being reported about by, by others who are hearing what they're saying, who are planning and hoping for your death. The worst of it's described in verse 9, that his close friend whom he trusted, his confidence, someone he shared meals with and, and cared for, turned on him. And that really brings us to the focus of this, why we're studying this psalm. This psalm doesn't identify who David is speaking of from his own personal experience, <clears throat> but as you read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, it would seem likely he's referring to his counselor, Ahithophel. You can read the story in 2nd Samuel 15 through 17. It's the story of the revolt of his own son, Absalom, who wants to do a coup and come in and take over dad's throne. And David was forced to flee at that time from Jerusalem with all his mighty men, but Ahithophel, his main political confidant friend, he stayed back with the coup. He didn't go with David. And that was the grief. That was the heartache. And David praised that the, that the Lord would turn the wise counsel, because he knew what a wise counselor he was, that he would turn it to foolishness when it came to Absalom, his son. And God answered David's prayer in his time, but not how David asked. The Lord has a way of doing that, doesn't he? We pray. I think this is how you should work this situation out, Lord. And I'm, you know, this is how it should go. Well, David's, or the Lord's ways are not our ways, and they're much higher and wiser. So the way God answered this prayer was Ahithophel did give wise counsel to Absalom. But Absalom totally disregarded it. He didn't care. Absalom was a fool. So when that happened, Ahithophel went home, put his house in order, and we read he hanged himself in 2 Samuel 17. <clears throat> the promised Messiah was also to have a similar experience that David had. So David not only speaks of his own experience, but he actually is predicting the betrayal of Christ by Judas. Centuries removed from David now, the God-man Jesus is celebrating the Passover, the last week of his earthly life. He's with his 12 disciples. And in John 13, Jesus is telling that there is one who has been with him all three years, a part of his ministry, who is about to betray him. And then he quotes our study, Psalm 41. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread is lifted up his heel against me. Jesus went on to say, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. His disciples had no clue as to who among them would do such a thing. You know, for us, we sit back and say, couldn't you tell something different about Judas? I mean, didn't, you know, his attitude or whatever. But really, they had no idea. Judas was, it wasn't obvious that he was discontented or a grumbler or whatever. But what is so sobering is that this man, Judas, could be with the Twelve for all those years and hear Jesus teach and see him do miracle after miracle and yet still betray him. It's a stark reminder that if it happened back then with the apostles and Jesus himself with a man, it can happen today where the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, where people pretend, appear, to be a part of the family of God, and it's not true. It's interesting that both Ahithophel and Judas ended up hating their own lives so much and what they had done that they both hanged themselves. 
As Peter was preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost to his Jewish audience, he's speaking about Jesus, and he says to them, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He was reminding them that all this was God's plan from the beginning, that Jesus would have to come and die and be that sacrificial lamb. And Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 it predicts even the amount of silver to be used at the betrayal of Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. Jesus said in Matthew 26, the Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. <clears throat> Judas wasn't forced to do this to fill God's predetermined plan. It makes it clear here, Judas was responsible for what he did, but God can even take evil like Judas and make it work in part of the redemptive plan of God. Satan loves to whisper to us that familiar lie, nobody knows my sorrow, nobody knows my pain, nobody knows the heartache I'm going through and my situation, but that is his lie. Israel's greatest king experienced heartache, disloyalty, tragedy in his life, loss of a baby, on and on it goes. And our beloved high priest, while he was on earth, experienced this kind of pain. He loved Judas and this kind of betrayal, besides all of the guys running away when he's arrested, besides God the Father turning his back on him and abandoning him totally. So our high priest knows our pain. David goes on to speak in another psalm about this enemy. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor it is one who, who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God in the throng. You can hear the pain in David's heart. And as I said, Jesus experienced the wound of betrayal by Judas, whom he loved. And our high priest is touched by our pain. He knows by experience, though he never sinned. As David finishes these thoughts, he turns his heart and mind towards his faithful Lord. And David really is renewed and thankful. <clears throat> but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. David prays again, asking the Lord for mercy, and he pleads for the Lord to raise him up from his sickbed, so I may repay them. Now, I know that sounds like... Please make me well so I can kill these guys. <laughs> but, you know, the Lord's not going to answer a prayer of revenge because revenge doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord and Him alone. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So David's prayer really is for justice to be done so that the nation of Israel can be returned to stability, something his enemies cared nothing about. They were just caring about self. So, in thinking about some lessons we can learn from this psalm, first of all, I thought, be alert for opportunities to show mercy to others in their time of need. You know, when you see a need and you meet that need, 
down the road, you may have the very same need. And someone else will have that ministry to minister to you. That's how showing mercy works. The God of all mercy responds to the cry of those who have themselves been merciful to others. <clears throat> and then be humble like David. You know what? We really need to admit our sin and examine our hearts openly and honestly before the Lord. Calling him upon him in every difficulty. Staying up to date with confessing our sins. God answers prayer, really not to make our life easier, but for him to give the glory. <clears throat> and when you find yourself betrayed or treated with disloyalty by someone you really trusted, then we need to follow what Jesus said in Matthew 7. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And then I thought, you know what, we have such a joy to have the scriptures. It is God's breath breathed out words, we know that. But every detail is fulfilled. How amazing in a little verse in Psalm 41 that it was predicting what Judas would do centuries and centuries later. The word of God is truth. We can base our lives upon it and love it and obey it and memorize it and learn it. It is worthy of our trust. Now we turn our attention to the prophecy about Christ from Psalm 118. And this is the most referred to psalm in the New Testament. It is quoted in every one of the Gospel writers. <clears throat> it was written to call God's people to worship as a messianic psalm. And we see so much of Jesus in the verses. But time doesn't permit, obviously, for us to go over 29 verses. There is much we can learn from this beautiful song, but we are forced to focus on the messianic part of it. What I read as background regarding the psalm is that it was a song and it was always sung at festivals. Perhaps it was composed for the Feast of Tabernacles when the people returned from exile. We're really not sure when it was composed. But it was a song of praise to the Lord for his loyal love to the people of Israel. Whether it was when they returned from exile or some other important time of Israel's deliverance in their history. This is a song of joy and faith. And it was likely the song Jesus sang in the upper room. We read in Matthew 26:30 that they sang as they left. And this was a song that was sung at every festival. Amazing to think that the one who inspired the psalmist to write this song is now singing it as he's going to face the agony of the cross. So we look at Psalm of Thanksgiving, Psalm 118. <clears throat> we read a call to worship with the Lord for thankfulness. It begins and it ends the same way. And you can really envision that when people were gathered to worship, that each different group would say their line, you know, and echo each other back and forth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. What an amazing truth that the goodness and the loving kindness of God actually endures forever. You know what? In this life, nothing lasts. <laughs> Whether it's in our home, our body, what we just bought, it doesn't matter. It doesn't last. It's all decaying. But that's because nothing here on this earth lasts forever. But we can give thanks to the Lord always because he is good. And his mercy and loving kindness does last forever. 
David said in Psalm 23 that his goodness and mercy follows him all the days of his life, right into all of eternity. So no matter what is going on in our lives, we are to give praise to the Lord because he is good. And though we experience trials and pain and uncertainty, there is no change in the mercy and goodness of God. He is faithful. He is faithful to the nation of Israel. He is faithful to be merciful to you and to me. If we know him, he'll be faithful and merciful to our children and grandchildren. How often we just forget to give him praise and instead focus on and grumble about everything we don't like going on in our life that he has allowed for a purpose. Whether life is good, ugly, or bad doesn't change the truth that God is good and his loving kindness endures forever. Sometimes when all around us we're surrounded by so much sorrow, we really have to discipline our minds to think about the things that are true and that will never change about God. And we can always praise him then for his amazing attributes. Verses 5 through 9, we're reminded to trust the Lord and not people. The writer goes on to say that the Lord helped him even though he was surrounded by his enemies. The Lord is my strength and my song. The righteous will enter through the gate of the Lord who has become my salvation. So we jump to verse 22, the rejected stone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I was trying to think, so what was David or, the, or whoever wrote the psalm <clears throat> saying that was his personal experience in, in regards to this statement? We know it's about Jesus, but for the moment the man, when he wrote it, <clears throat> what I read is that it would seem that the stone rejected initially was the psalmist himself, the king of Israel. He had been looked down upon by all the surrounding kings who invaded Israel as they sought to build their own world empires. The psalmist may have been rejected by men, but he was still chosen by God. And Israel was still a pe the people of God, uh, the cornerstone that God has on earth. Israel obviously had a central role in God's purposes of human history. The cornerstone on a building <coughs> is the most important stone in the building because it's a strong stone made to bond the walls all together. Prophetically, Jesus is this chief cornerstone who was cast away by the builders or the religious Jewish leaders is really who that was about. Jesus made it very clear that this was a prophetic reference to himself in Matthew 21. He quotes here from our passage, 118.22, right after he gave a parable to the Pharisees. Remember the parable of the landowner? He, he bought land, he went away, he rented it out to some men. Then when he sent men back to check on its, how it was going, they killed everyone he sent. They beat him, they killed him, and then the landowner finally said, I'll send my son, and they killed him too. And then Jesus, after he told this parable, he said to the Pharisees, what will he do? What will that landowner do to these vine growers? And they said, oh, he should be brought to a wretched end, and then rent out the vineyard, give it to other vine growers. Well, these religious leaders failed to see they were the wicked tenants in this whole story. But they gave the right answer. So Jesus then goes on to tell them, you know what, you're right. And then he quotes this verse, Psalm 118, 22. The religious leaders would have been very familiar and known this psalm well. And it speaks of the rejection of the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, he is that stone and you are the ones rejecting you, the religious leaders, because you're plotting to kill me. 
But God will overrule their rejection of him, and he will indeed become the chief cornerstone, and the spiritual temple to God will be built on him. God himself brought about the exaltation of Jesus. It was his doing. He raised Jesus from the dead. And then we see the next verses in 24 and 25 really brings us up to what we're about to celebrate, Palm Sunday. <clears throat> this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The marvelous work that God has done. And the day of rejoicing initially celebrated a deliverance in the land of Israel from its enemies. But ultimately, these verses were looking ahead to the death of Jesus on the cross, to a day that was all a part of the eternal plan of God from before time began. These verses predict what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, as Jesus made that descent and riding down on the donkey into Jerusalem. The crowds began to take off their coats and lay it on the ground for him to ride over. They grabbed palm branches, laid it on the ground. That was a symbolic way of saying, we're in submission to you. We want you to be our king. Palm branches were a symbol of Israel, of having victory over their enemies. It was even on their coins. So Jesus makes his uh, triumphal entry, his descent, and the crowd is following him, and there's people behind him and in front of him, and they're shouting these verses. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was most likely done with the people chanting these words back and forth. They know this psalm. It's always sung at Jewish festivals, and this is Passover. And so they're saying this song. They, they see Jesus as their king. He's coming. We're going to be delivered from Rome. Save now. Save, we pray. That's Hosanna. So they call him the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. They want him to be their king to get rid of Rome's oppression. They thought he'd come, he'd drive away their oppressors, Rome, and be a free nation again. But they failed to see his true mission. The first time Jesus came was to overthrow sin that dominates and reigns the human heart. He came to establish his kingdom in the hearts and lives of those who would submit to him. All they were thinking about is, I want my life to be better, I want my life to be easier, I don't want this oppression and misery. And I thought how misleading they were and how misleading many teachers today on radio TV and books do the same thing, making the same claims. Just come to Jesus. All will be well. He will make everything okay in your life. But when they are not delivered from their earthly problems, or in reality they get worse, <clears throat> they become angry, disillusioned, and hostile. That is what happened to Jesus after his triumphal entry. I mean, it's only a few days later, these same people saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The tune changed to crucify him. In Luke, we read about how Jesus, as he came in, there was a point where he looked out over Jerusalem. He knew how fickle the people were. He knew the nation as a whole would reject him. He saw Israel. He knew it would be destroyed in 40 years by the Romans, the temple, and everything he was looking at. And he wept like you weep over the grave of a loved one. Jesus was about to complete the work he had come to do, which was made possible the salvation of all who would choose and come to believe in him. So the question is, have you submitted yourself to this king? When you recognize how sinful, how rebellious, how independent you've lived your life, you must come to him, falling in humble repentance before him, trusting Jesus that his death was on your behalf, 
where he bore the wrath of God for your sin and mine. And we can have assurance that we are right with God when we call upon him to save us and to forgive us. And then we can say with the psalmist right here, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. It will never, ever end. <clears throat> so the psalm concludes as it began. You know what? Thanksgiving is to be our lifestyle, ladies. It should be seen in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our words, and in our deeds. Do people know you as a complainer and a grumbler? Is that what characterizes you? That's the opposite. This is the will of God for you, and everything give thanks. So you're clearly out of the will of God. So something has to change how you think, how you speak, how you behave. We are commanded to give thanks. After all, he does deliver his own from every trial and adversity whether that deliverance is in this life or when we die. God will absolutely deliver every believer from their adversities at some point. But the greatest deliverance that we all need is the reality that God has made a way for us to be delivered from the wrath of God through the blood of his Son. If you know him, you have been rescued from eternal judgment and hell. That's enough to be thankful for the rest of our lives here on earth. Therefore, we are to be a thankful people. He deserves all praise and thanks because his love for us endures forever. So what changes do you need to make in your attitudes and how you think and how you speak so that you will obey and be a thankful person? And you know what? If you have young children in your home, what are they learning by your example? To be thankful or to grumble and complain? We have to set the example. This is the will of God for every believer. God, help us to get focused off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, as we turn our hearts heavenward and are thankful. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reliability of your word that in little verses that tucked away in the Old Testament are details, everything about your life and your death. Lord, I thank you for the truth of who you are. I thank you that we can rely on you. I pray that we would be a thankful people rejoicing in your amazing mercy shown to us. Wretched, undeserving sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.